Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. How are you, church? You guys glad to be here? It, it's, uh, <laughs> you got to still remember what it was like when for like a year we couldn't even be around together, and so I just hope every Sunday as you're pulling to the parking lot, no matter how tired you are, how early it feels, just be thankful. I mean, this is so much better than what it's been. I want to start a short series on stewardship today. And I want to speak for three weeks on that topic. But I want to begin with a question. When you hear the word stewardship spoken from the pulpit, let's do a little word association. What are the things you think about when you hear me say the word stewardship? Money, okay. Probably associated with giving, tithing, offering. And that's logical because that's the way it's spoken about most of the time in church world. The way we talk about the word stewardship most of the time in church is in the context of generous giving or biblical financial management practices. So it's this idea that it's not mine, so I want to take good care how I spend it, and that I want to give a lot of it to the work of God. And that's all a legitimate part of this idea of stewardship. But stewardship is much more than that. It runs much deeper than that. To reduce stewardship to generous giving is like reducing wellness to jogging. You know, it's part of it, but you don't get well just by jogging furiously. There's so much more involved in wellness. And stewardship is really not just a practice. Stewardship is a posture. It's something deeper than that. It's rooted in the word steward. And I don't know if you've ever thought about what a steward is. You know, back in the days, we used to call the women who um, served us on an airplane stewardesses. And then... Um, It shifted to the more gender-neutral flight attendant, which I think was a good change. But a steward, that's an office, a job that's been around for as long as there have been rich people. And the idea of a steward is this. When you have so much money that you can afford to hire someone to do all the junk you hate doing to keep your life running so that you can focus on building wealth and enjoying the wealth you have, you hire a steward. And a steward is someone who is second only to you in your household. They have full access to all of your accounts. They have all the authority over every other member of the staff. They are like a domestic chief of staff. And so when they speak, it's the same as you speaking as the master of the house. They're paid. They have wonderful fringe benefits. But the point of the the steward is that every single thing they do, even though it looks on the outside like they run the house, That ownership is a complete illusion. A steward is someone entrusted entirely to manage the affairs of someone else. And at times, when when, when an investment that a steward makes on behalf of, of his employer really takes off, there's a joy like, oh man, we just hit it big. And then the next second after, there's a reminder, oh, it's not my money. But still, it feels really good. I bet on Bitcoin and it hit. And, you know, it's like, wow, look what I did. And yet in all of it, the gains, the losses, all of it isn't his. It always has been part of the one who owns it all. The word steward in Greek, when you, whenever you see it in the Greek Bible, is oikonomos. 
And that's the word, the Greek word from which we derive the English words economy and economics. It literally means household management. And I always wondered about, like, there was a class way back in the ancient days called home economics. How many of you guys had a home economics class in your school? Yeah, in my high school we had home ec. I'm like, why is it called economics? I, I guess they were Greek scholars because they understood it just means the management of a house. It's how you run things, how you distribute things, how you make decisions. And at the heart of stewardship is the idea, this figure called the master of the house. Because if he does not build that wealth and entrust it over, the steward has nothing. This life he enjoys full of trust, access, comfort, it's all provided because the person who owns it all has invited them into the process and given them all those things. So in spite of all the ways in which, apart from the master being present, the steward of the house is the man. Like he will walk around, and when the other maids or the gardeners see the steward, they bow, they, they're deferential, they're scared because that guy could fire them. That guy could give them a raise. The steward has real authority, real managerial control, but the minute the master of the house walks in, the steward remembers his place, and so does everybody else. At the heart of biblical stewardship is this figure we often overlook in the process of stewardship. We focus so much on the management of things, the distribution of things, but the most important part of stewardship is acknowledging that everything we manage and distribute belongs to another, and it's his existence, his presence, that forms the bedrock of the concept of biblical stewardship. That's what the heart of real stewardship is, is an acknowledgement that there is a God and everything that I feel is mine is ultimately his. And that's a good thing because as he owns all the things, he owns all the things, including the burdens, which we insist so often on carrying around with us everywhere. The heaviness, the fear, the things that feel impossible, we take it all. And when we don't acknowledge God's ownership and control of everything, we don't just take all our stuff and hold it, we take all our junk and hold it too. It's hard to honestly ask God to take the junk while we hold the goods. And so that's the truth of our souls. Our souls rarely really lie to us. Uh, there's, there's a tension that mounts whenever we're talking out of two sides of our mouths. And, and that's the truth. When we honestly yield to God as the one who owns it all, then we can also honestly cry out to God as the one who must come and bear our burdens for us. God carries and owns everything. See, stewardship is a pretty easy concept to understand, but I think it's one of the hardest Christian concepts to accept. It's really easy to understand this idea intellectually, that God owns everything. But I'm going to be honest with you, I find that a little hard to wrestle with in the everyday. And part of it is that our hearts are fiercely independent. And the stuff that we've worked so hard to accumulate really does feel like it's ours. I mean, I know that if you woke up, most of you, with my income tomorrow, you'd be so sad. But I feel like I'm very comfortable and I earn a good amount of money. And as I work hard for it, there are days when I'm in the store and I just buy what I want. 
And I'll be honest with you, this idea that any of it really is anyone else's but mine, it's like I have to remember it actively because it doesn't feel real to me. My stuff feels like my stuff. And because I'm not just fiercely independent, but I'm also a fiercely independent American, that's even, like, that's, being an American is taking independence and bam, putting some special sauce on it. I feel doubly like, wow, none of this should be anybody else's. It's all mine. So when I hear stewardship, I often think in terms of um, managing it well and giving God his fair share. God, listen, here's your 10%. Can I just keep the 90 and you stay out of it? And I find that it's really hard to wrap my heart around this foundational principle that that 90% even is not mine and that that is good news. Let me help you along because... uh, you're probably feeling right now what I felt Monday as I really dug in to the study for the sermon. I spent the first half of this week in tension and kind of bothered by all of this. And then things began to resolve later in the week. And you should know that when a pastor comes and gives a sermon, it may sound like a finished speech, but it actually is the culmination of a journey where God is just beating on us and we're wrestling with him. And then be like, I'm exhausted. I think I finally understand what it is that God wants to say to us. And so emotionally, I ride over a week through what you ride through in 30 minutes listening. So I want to acknowledge that my opening isn't the feel-good message of the year. I also know that because you guys work really hard to get what's yours. I think it's hard to accept the steward as a metaphor for what we are as Christians Because we have worked hard for everything we own, and it really does feel like we own it. And if God were not real, if God were not in the picture, that would be the most sane understanding of things. Why shouldn't what I work for be mine? And apart from God, that's exactly what it is. If I were a steward in in the old world, I would be kind of ticked a lot of the time because here's this boss who maybe inherited his wealth and he entrusted it to me and I do all the nasty, hard, boring stuff. I make all the shrewd decisions. When I know he's coming home, I line up all the staff, make sure the bath water is drawn to the right temperature. Everything is set from him. He just strolls through life thinking, I'm in heaven. Everything is so great. And if I were the steward, I'd feel like, you know why it's like that? It's because I managed everything like it was mine, but you benefit 100% from it. Apart from the master of the house being in his presence, that is the steward's house. It bends to his will. It does what he wants. And I think that apart from God in the picture, my ownership of everything is the most sane and logical and right, even morally right thing to think. But the minute God becomes real to us, it must change the picture of the concept of ownership. It's so fundamental to what it means to know God is to acknowledge this simple fact. I haven't even shown a single slide yet. I'm still on the title page. But if you look at Deuteronomy 8.18, this is a time when Moses is beginning the journey um, leading Israel towards the promised land. And already looking ahead, he knows that they are having a hard time in the wilderness, but they're about to enter a land that is so comfortable and luxurious. 
And understanding the great power of comfort and luxury to pull the heart away from God, he is warning the people at the onset of the journey. Moses warned the Israelites this way, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Because these people were living out of suitcases, and after years of that, when they entered the promised land, all of a sudden, everything would get easier and more prosperous, and they would celebrate the building of wealth. I don't think we should celebrate poverty. I think the building of wealth should be a blessing. It should be good news for humanity. But as it's built, it ha- it's not a neutral thing. Wealth is not neutral. Just ask anyone who's lost it or anyone who's gained it whether their money has not affected their soul at all. That's nonsense. I have lost and gained great sums of income in my short life. And I know it's affected me. And it's not supposed to affect me because I'm a pastor, so I'm supposed to just like Jesus everything. Man, it's messed me up. I lost five figures of income in one day by changing jobs. And I wish I could say, you know, it was such a joy to answer the call of the Lord. I didn't need that money. It messed me up. I had to start checking sale prices and clipping coupons again and saying no to Jeannie and the kids. And it was just, it was a completely different world. The ability to build wealth feels like it comes from us, especially when we compare ourselves to others who maybe work less, made poorer choices, and you get the life you built. So we look at them and say, I'm sorry it's hard for you, but while you're out running around, I was studying and I didn't enjoy it, so there. Fair is fair. And I get that. At a human level, I 100% understand the logic of that. But even that focus, even the luxury of being able to just sit in a library and study as a teenager and not have to deal with other things that would get in the way, even that's a gift from God. And what Moses is reminding the people is, you're going to feel like as you enter the promised land, all of your hard work translates to wealth and you built it. And he's reminding them, no, even the ability to do that comes from God. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 7 Paul reminds Timothy, as he tells him to teach others, this very important principle. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. You know, over the course of our lifetimes, some of us will hold great wealth in our hands, and some of us will never know what that feels like. That's the interesting thing about being in a room that is built not around a common socioeconomic stratum, but it is built around Christ, so that what you get in this room are people who are ballers and people who are not. Some of you have money at a level that others in this room could not even fathom. The freedom that it affords you, the freedom from worry, the ability to do things, to experience things, and you shouldn't feel guilty about that, but that's what we have in this room is we have this room full of a a huge gradient of people, and some of us will hold much, some of us will hold little, but here's the thing that equalizes, every last one of us will only hold it temporarily. You know, in an airplane, I've, I've flown nearly a million miles in my life, and I've ridden first class once in my whole existence. That's weird to me. I'm mismanaging miles or something. 
The one time I flew first class was because they had practically an empty plane, and from Chicago to Columbus, Ohio, for like 30 minutes, I woke up and it was done. I sat in first class, which is really just a pretty shabby, lazy boy. Uh, it wasn't even a great plane. But no matter which class cabin you sit in, if the plane crashes, everyone crashes together. And this is the truth of it. Whether you hold great wealth or a little wealth, every one of us only holds it for a moment. You could fiercely grip it, accumulate as much as possible, but at the end, when it's your time, it all leaves your hand, just like the poor man, the rich man, the same. Whatever you hold is held only for a moment. Job, which is arguably the the oldest book in the Bible, right in the first chapter, he says the same thing. I came into this place naked. I'm going to leave naked. That's the way it is for everyone. And so I've shown this image before. There there are no, I I don't have it this day, but uh, you never see a U-Haul trailer hitched up to a hearse, right? I mean, no matter how much you try, you cannot take any of it with you. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, possibly Solomon, but whoever he was, very wise, thoughtful man, he said this, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish, yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. It's incredible to me that stuff like that's in the Bible. It's just so real and raw and honest. It's it's in Scripture. This guy's thinking about all the stuff he's accumulating. He's like, I'm going to have to leave this to a bunch of potentially idiotic people. See, that last bit of control that you can exercise over your fortune is who gets it when you're dead. And even that is a gamble because you're not really sure if the ones you left it to will do anything good with it or not. They might waste it all. They might lose every cent of it. It might poison, it might accelerate the demise of their lives. We have no idea and no control. And it's this fundamental and yet depressing truth that whatever you hold in this life, whether you got handfuls or just a little, it all goes out the door when you exit. It's only here in our hands for a moment. And it's not how much or how fiercely, but it's what we did while we held it. That's the measure of us. That's the story of our lives. That's what stewardship biblically boils down to, isn't it? Whatever I was entrusted with, Where did it go? What did it produce in the real universe? What did it produce inside of me and inside of the people that I love the most? At the root of it, a mammalian impulse is to give mine and and, and all of my people as much good stuff as possible. And that is a certain kind of blessing. But sometimes that's exactly the thing which handicaps the people we love. We've given them everything. And they don't know what it means to need. Whatever we have, what we do with it, and what it produces in our souls and in the souls of others, that is truly the story of stewardship and the story of the treasure entrusted to us. Our treasure is whatever is most valuable or precious to us. Sometimes it's the thing itself. 
Sometimes it's what that thing represents. So even when we say, my children are my treasure, we've all met two kinds of parents. There are some who just love their kids, no matter what their kids do. I just love this kid. And there are other parents who love what their kid represents. You are my second chance at all the unfinished business. You are my chance to beat my friends, to finally achieve something. And so sometimes we love the thing itself. Sometimes we love what that thing represents to us. But we all have treasures, and these are the things which in our heart of hearts we hold most dear to us. It's that thing which if anyone else took it away, you feel like you couldn't survive it. I can lose a lot of things, but if I lose this, I don't think I can make it. What is that treasure in your life? What is that prized, valuable thing which you cannot let go of because of what it symbolizes to you? If you're with us on the Harvest Bible reading plan, the New Testament plan, recently you would have read, maybe like a week ago, you would have read Matthew 26. And as I was reading it, something jumped out at me this year that I had not really noticed before. I saw two really beautiful examples of stewardship where people gave up things that are really precious to them, things they worked very hard to accumulate, and they gave them up in one single act of risky worship. To Jesus. In verses 6 to 13, a woman enters a house while Jesus is a guest at a dinner party. Uh, this guy's name is Simon the Leopard, his host. I, I wonder how it would feel to be called Simon the Leper. I don't know if he survived leprosy, but forever that's who, what he was known as. And as he's hosting Jesus, this woman just walks right into the dinner party, very socially awkward moment. And she kneels in front of him, and she takes out an alabaster jar. Alabaster is just a kind of material. And she pops it open, and it's inside. Everyone can smell it immediately, a very expensive perfume. And she pours it out and anoints Jesus' body. And as soon as she begins doing it, all the disciples, it's recorded, stood up and protested, what a wasteful gesture, what are you doing? You can imagine if someone came in with a paper cut and they're like, I need to disinfect it, and someone grabbed a bottle of Macallan 25 and just started pouring it liberally on the paper cut. You'd be like, please don't do that. Get anything else but not Macallan 25. That's a very expensive bottle. Leave it alone. Because it seems like a very wasteful way to spend what could otherwise be better employed. They see this woman take what amounted to her life savings, this thing which was her most valued possession, and she just pours it out without a second thought. It's not even a little dabbing. She's just letting it go. And if you've ever smelled you know, essential oils, even a drop will fill a room. I mean, this place must have reeked with it. And they're so upset because, and here's their protest, this could have been sold and the money used to care for the poor. So they're rebuking not only the woman, but in a sideways manner, they're rebuking Jesus. How can you let her do this? Don't you know what we could have done for the poor with this money? As if they outloved the poor compared to Jesus. And Jesus instead turns and rebukes them, and he says to them, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
I get chills every time I teach about this woman because I realize I'm actually fulfilling the, the thing that Jesus said 2,000 years ago, that everywhere this story of the gospel will be taught, this woman would be mentioned. And I just did it. <laughs> Ooh. This woman who nobody knows. They said they cared about the poor. But what Jesus is pointing out is before you could ever really care about the poor, you got to care about the Lord. Before stewardship can be a, a response to the needs of people, it has to be a response to the worthiness of God. Stewardship is not just generosity and financial management. Stewardship is ultimately worship. And here's why that's important, because even though we really love people, none of us love people that much to make a lifetime of sustainable, generous, sacrificial giving our way of life. No one in this room loves other people nearly that much. So if we're banking on our care and compassion to drive what we call stewardship, it will run out eventually. The first time you're burned, taken advantage of, lied to, where the things you give are misappropriated, that will burn you. You will pull back. You will become less generous. First of all, stewardship is a declaration of the worthiness, the beauty of God. And then it releases everything else because it's God calling you to do this or to do that. You do it ultimately for him and not just for other people. If we don't see in God a worthiness and a beauty that unlocks everything else we're holding... The battle is not with stewardship. The battle is with seeing God, and that's where our focus has to be. Years ago, I traveled, um, and I spoke at a retreat, and this young married couple came up to me. Clearly, they'd been fighting, and so they wanted me to referee the fight. It wasn't really counseling. It was more, um, you know, can you just tell us which one of us is right? And each one's like, tell him he's wrong, you know. So here's the fight. They'd just gotten married, and she really wanted them to combine checking accounts and share money. And he's like, I don't even get that at all. I love her, but why does she have to have access to my money? Now, I'm not suggesting there's a biblical way to arrange the checking accounts in a marriage, okay? I'm not going to go that far. But as I listened to their rationale, I began to discern something. The man, he kept saying stuff like, yeah, but I don't get it. Like, why do I have to pay for that thing? Why do I have to give her just as she asked? And the whole time he's like, he kept saying, I love her, but why? I love her, but why? And I, at one point I just had to go, brother, I'm not really sure you love her as much as you think. It's not just about the money, but the way you keep throwing that out there, I feel like when a man really loves a woman, he's not nickeling and diming the accounting of it. Actually, when a man loves a woman, it usually goes the opposite direction. He becomes recklessly generous, irresponsibly so. He does grand gestures he can't afford just to show her what he's got. I'm not telling you you don't love her. I just don't know if you love her quite as much as you think because it's all been about why I have to, not why do I get to. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you're not, if you're feeling a little bit of uh, tension rising up in you, you're feeling a little like I'm maybe um, manipulating or or coercing some, some behavior, that's not what it's about. That's not my aim at all. My goal here is not to get you to give more money to harvest. I want to get that just out of the way. You don't have to. Okay, That's not why this message is being preached. I'm sharing this message because I want you to understand the heart 
of what this biblical concept called stewardship is. It is seeing in God someone of such beauty and worth that you stop counting things and you see that. A little later in Matthew 26, Jesus sends his disciples into town to prepare a place for them to have their last meal. It's Passover, and they need to have the Seder meal together. And so he sends them ahead into town, and he says to them, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples in your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. So here in the story, Jesus had entered a week earlier in triumph. Everyone's like, yes, the deliverer from Rome is finally here. And when they realize that's not what he's going to do, everyone turned on him. And the religious leaders in the city could sense the shift of energy. And they had always hated Jesus because he made them look bad. He was threatening the status quo in which they led everything. And so they were threatened by him. They were plotting actively for a way to end his life. It was a very dangerous time in Jerusalem to be a friend of Jesus. You risked a great deal by being a friend of Jesus. And yet this man, whoever he was, he opened up his home, and if he has an upper room that can host a dinner for 12 people, that's not a poor guy. I have a nice house, but I'm not sure I could see 12 people at one table anywhere in my house. This is a man of means, and he must have had reputation and wealth, and he opens his home to the the most unpopular man in Jerusalem to gather with his crew and have one last meal, knowing this would mark him, knowing that he's risking his reputation, his business, possibly his life, to come out openly as a friend of Jesus. I just saw it as a room. Just, I'll, I'll let you use my room. I didn't see before just how much this anonymous man risked to open it up. And as a result, Jesus had a comfortable place to have that last meal. And the recordings of the teachings in that room at that dinner are some of the most powerful revelations of the mind and the heart of Jesus we have in all of the Bible. That one room... That one meal, the things Jesus said are some of the most precious things that ever came out of his mouth. And as we read them, we're reading words made possible in part by a man who risked a lot that he had worked hard to gain so that he could provide something for Jesus. Every time we take communion, we commemorate a meal that was made possible in part by a man who put his house on the line. He used his house for something bigger than housing his family. And there's beauty in that. Every time we take communion, in part, we pay tribute to the small decision this one man made. And what jumped out at me this year reading Matthew 26 was that in both cases, the names of these two important people who are spoken of, referenced year after year, for 2,000 years in every Christian community, these two people's stories has been told in some form. We have no idea what they're called. The woman is referred to in Scripture as a woman, and the man is referred to as a certain man. That's as anonymous as you get, and yet they become such important parts of the story of Jesus. You know, each time we worship Jesus by letting go of what is in our hands for his sake, we have no idea what he's going to do with that. 
It's Black History Month, so I feel it's appropriate as I close to share a story of a modern great American and a modern great saint. I came across this woman's story, and I read it over and over this week. It really blessed me. I want to introduce you to a woman named Osceola McCarty. She was born when her mother, she was conceived when her mother was raped on her way home, walking through the woods from having cared for a sick relative. In sixth grade, she had really nobody else left taking care of her. She was the sole caregiver for so many ailing relatives. And when her aunt, who was taking care of her after her mother passed away, became sick, she dropped out of sixth grade and never re-entered school. She started taking care of her, her aunt. And for her whole life, she spent her life working as a seamstress and as a laundress. So she just mended and washed other people's clothing, and she was paid in change and small bills for the entirety of her life. She was born in 1908, and she died in 1999. In all those years she worked, she hardly spent a penny for herself. She faithfully worshipped God. She faithfully took care of her relatives. Every time she made money, she would squirrel it away in a jar, and then when she had enough, she would take it to the local bank, and the way she designated it is that she would give the money and say, 10% goes to my church, 10% goes to each of three relatives, and 60% goes into savings. And then out of that savings, I would like the bank to send me a little money just for my living expenses. So she lived this way for decade after decade after decade, socking away 60% of her money. And when she reached a ripe old age, she realized that she had something like $150,000 saved up. She lived in rural Mississippi, and she decided in 1995 to donate the entire sum of $150,000, her life savings, to the University of Southern Mississippi in order to create a scholarship fund for African-American students who could not attend university because they couldn't afford it. She's pictured here with a young lady named Stephanie Bullock in 1995, who was the first recipient of that scholarship, who could do what Miss McCarty could never do because of the way her life turned out. And through a lifetime of living frugally, focused on her faith, she accumulated what was for her an amazing fortune and she gave every last penny away. And dozens of kids have been able to go to university since because she gave up her life in order for other people to have a shot at life. When the story came out of what she'd done, and that's the kind of thing any advancement officer at a university is going to tell that story a thousand times. Over 600 other donors were so moved, they contributed an additional $300,000 to that fund. And then when billionaire Ted Turner heard her story, he said publicly, if that little woman can give that much money, I'm going to give away a billion dollars of my money. Now, he didn't give it to the University of Southern Mississippi, but he was one of the early billionaires who began to discover the power of just giving it away. And he was taught this lesson by a woman who spent her entire life watching, washing other people's laundry. President Bill Clinton gave her a Presidential Citizens Medal. And before she died... Though she never finished sixth grade, she received an honorary doctorate from Harvard University. That's one of my favorite parts of that story. She died as Dr. Osceola McCarty 
PhD from Harvard. I mean, her whole life, one could argue, was wasted. Why scrimp and save? What you could have done to make your life a little more comfortable. And I wouldn't falter if she did. But somehow, something grabbed hold of her, and she decided to live a certain way. And as she lays down her life, dozens of other lives rise up in that wake. What could you do with 150,000? You could do a lot, but you, you can't do nearly as much as you think. But she understood kingdom economics. 150,000 maybe buys you half a decent house, or maybe it takes a couple dozen young people and completely changes their life forever. I want to share her story to honor her, to give a window to the rich tapestry of contribution African Americans have made in this country's history, but also to remind us what it means to be a saint, a worshiper of the living God, is that everything entrusted to us ultimately is better used in his hands. Please don't misunderstand. That means you cannot have a nice steak that costs $80 once in a while. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying that as we think about our relationship to treasures, we have to think about what that says about our relationship to God. And whether I truly trust that in his hands, everything that I hold can become something a thousand times more magnificent than what I would have done with it. This past year for my birthday, or for Christmas, I'm sorry, somebody gave me $100 in cash. And I was blown away because I had recently preached a message about hospitality as the love of the stranger. And in the car, that person just said, this cash is not for you. It is to enable you to show love to the strangers you come across. And I still have some of that $100 left, but I've had a chance to give it away to some really interesting people. And one not-so-interesting person, just a drifter who took advantage of me and went over to the next car. But, you know, I think that person who gave me a gift gave me a great gift. It was a reminder that in my hands, 100 bucks becomes a few paints, another sketchbook. In God's hands, it could be something more. It could be hope that gets a person through a day. It could be a, a reminder for someone in despair that there are other people in the world who still care about their fellow human being. As I wrap up here, I want to just give you one last word as a church. Not every treasure is material. Some of our greatest treasures are things we've received over the course of walking in faith. My maternal grandmother, who was the first in my entire extended family line, I think of family trees where people who come to know the Lord, their little box on the family tree lights up. And she was the first light to come on. Over thousands of years of people walking this earth, the first light to come on for Jesus was her. And she poured out her faith to her sons, my dad being one of them, her youngest. And he handed his faith down to me. And I watched my mom and dad live their Christian life. I saw the way that they practiced their faith. They didn't just preach it. And it shaped the way I wanted to live. And when I thought I was going to become a scientist, God surprised me one day by grabbing hold of me and calling me to be a minister. 
And I hope that the way that I have ministered and led at this church wasn't just religious or superficial, but it was a faith lived out. And I didn't give that to anyone for myself. I learned it. I received it. As Paul challenged, what do you have that you didn't receive? That's my story. Everything good I treasure in my faith, I receive from someone else. And it is what I hope beyond everything else I hand down to my kids. I can't give them a big fortune. I can try to give them a good name, but my greatest inheritance to pass along will be that that first box that lit up on our family tree will still be lit up down the branches from me. And it's a course, in the course of living out this faith, you and I, we have all joined together in this family. We have sweated, we have bled, we have given till it hurt to build this church. I know in the end God builds the house, but I'll tell you, I remember story after story of us working through all the hard junk, making tough choices to build what I think is one of the most beautiful churches I've ever seen. It's not a perfect church, but man, have I seen a lot of churches, and I still love this one the best. This church is my life's work, but for many of you, it's your life's work too. And now as I'm facing my twilight, I'm thinking, what is it for? I have such a desire for this to be the safe, comfortable place in which I can finish out my days in peace, surrounded by the ones I love. I have often said I want to be buried under a tree in front of our building. That's kind of a weird thought, but that's my dream for this church. As if this is a thing I made for myself, I get to enjoy it till I die. But God has given me a fresh wind, a new vision. And my number one thought these days is not how can I enjoy and keep this church stable, but this thing which many of us have labored to build. It's time for us to really see the next generation and say to them, you've done so little to build it, but as we hand it to you, God's going to use you and your generation to do a new thing we can never do. God's vision for harvest extends way beyond our lifetimes. This church belongs to Him just like everything else. And I'm excited by this new vision to pour everything we have into handing our faith and our church to these young men and women who come next. I'm ready to give up everything to make sure that they inherit from us the very best of the kingdom which God entrusted to us. This is ultimately our legacy together. We will leave vastly different amounts of money to our children. But each of us together can leave behind a legacy of faith for those who follow us. And I just want to tell you, before you leave your children a penny, leave them the kingdom, the faith that energized and drove you all these years. Sometimes as the faith of our next generation is on the rise, ours is on the decline and we're tired and what they see when they most need the inspiration is they see weariness. So let's pray that would not be the case for us. It's not this church we're giving away. 
It's the faith that built the church. Do you remember that? Some of you I look and I've known you, I've run with you for over two decades. I still remember what it felt like when we were young and starting this thing. And there was no fear. There was no, what if this cost us? There was just, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. And he extracted his payment and he gave more than he ever took. And he built a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's what we steward as the greatest treasure. Will you give that back to God so he could give it to others? I want to invite us just to close this time in a, a moment of just reflection. You've heard a lot, maybe too much. So now in this moment, I stop talking. Listen for God. Listen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.